Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Familiar scripture. Used it a few times in the last couple of weeks. The baptism of Jesus at the Jordan River. He's immersed by John the Baptist. When he comes up out of the water, heavens open. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove rests upon Jesus. And the Father speaks from heaven with these words. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We have already stated in previous messages that in order to make sense of the Gospels, we have to appreciate the agenda, if that's the word I could use, or the reason for which each of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote their story, their version of the story of Jesus. And if we want to make full sense out of the Gospels, we have to begin with this fact is that the story of Old Testament Israel is unfinished and incomplete. Jesus has come to bring resolution to the as-of-yet or as-of-then unfinished story of Israel. And that's important. If we want to catch the meaning of the Gospels, that we catch that point or we would miss so much of what is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we need to spend some time considering it and thinking over these things for a variety of reasons. And one, because this is the gospel. To preach the gospel is to tell how Jesus finished the story, the incomplete story of the nation of Israel. That is the foundation of of the gospel, and if we're going to understand the gospel, we have to understand that. It will open for us a much greater understanding in reading the gospels. It will lift up Jesus, reveal him to our hearts and our minds. And how many know the Holy Spirit is happy when Jesus is lifted up? When Jesus is lifted up, the Holy Spirit gets excited. We need to grasp these things because it's the foundation upon which the church is built. It will cause us to appreciate Jesus even more for who he is and what he has done. And in many ways, he will serve as an example to us of what it means to be a son of God and what it means to be the servant of the Lord. We've already stated a small amount of repetition here that God's goal, plan of redemption for the world, was first to gain himself a people. Genesis chapter 12. He picks a man named Abram who becomes Abraham. And through this one man, a great nation would be birthed. And through that one nation, the light of God will go to the rest of the world. Through him, through Israel, through his descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is God's stated method of which the entire world will be brought into redemption. God hasn't changed His plan anywhere in history. Through God's people, the light would shine, and the rest of the world will come into the reality of redemption. 
But as we have seen in the Old Testament story of Israel, Israel miserably fails to embrace its purpose and itself is in need of redemption. Throughout their history, as you read their story in the Old Testament, they become eventually so far removed from God, removed from the heart of God, removed from the purpose of God, that they are eventually given over into exile in Babylon. The temple is destroyed, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, and perhaps the most horrendous thought is that the Spirit of God, the presence of God, has departed from them and is no longer with them. Here they are in a foreign country in exile in a place called Babylon where they will remain for seven decades. And the cry of the heart that is tender towards God, if there is anybody tender towards God in this time of history, is this question, when will the Spirit return to the people of God? Through the years, no, through the decades, no, through the centuries to follow, the people wait. And they wait. And they wait. And they have to wrestle with what has happened to them. The burning question, right up to the time of Jesus, on the lips of the disciples, even after Jesus is resurrected and before His ascended, the burning question on the nation was this, when would God restore the nation of Israel? Well, how does God do this? What is his answer to that question? Since God's plan was to reach the world through his chosen people, and those chosen people themselves are in need of salvation, Jesus comes first to save Israel, and then to fulfill Israel's responsibility by bearing the whole burden of Israel upon his own shoulders. This will help you make sense when you read the Gospels. All right. Therefore, each Gospel writer is going to retell the story of Israel, this time in the person of Jesus, who in his own person will finally bring that story of its failure, its decline, its lostness, its backsliding, and its exile, bring correction into all that, and bring the story of Israel to its rightful, God-given climax. Therefore, the mission of Jesus is to be the true son of Israel, to take on the role and responsibility of Israel upon himself, to offer salvation first to the Jew, and then to the rest of the world. If you read the Gospels, all four of them, with that in mind, I'll guarantee you, you will start to see things in those Gospels that were mysteries to you before. Certain sentences will make sense to you. Certain stories, will, will, you'll catch on the meaning of them even more. You've got to read through that agenda to make sense of the material, because this is the gospel. The life of Jesus is going to capture all the stories of Israel to bring all of them to their as-of-yet unfinished completion. 
For instance, just to give you some teasers of how this works. When Jesus is a child, when Herod is out to kill him, he is taken to Egypt for safety. Folks, that's the nation of Israel going down to survive in the time of famine. That's the Old Testament story when Israel goes down to Egypt for safety. When as a child, Jesus is taken out of Egypt, he is God's son, Israel, coming out of Egypt to the promised land. When Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness being tested, he is the nation of Israel going through exactly the very same tests as their own wilderness wanderings. With this big difference, Jesus chooses and cleaves to the covenant, whereas Old Testament Israel always broke covenant. But he is Israel going into the testings of the wilderness. When Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, he's Moses. In answering why he heals on the Sabbath, he's King David. As he picks 12 disciples, he is Jacob giving birth to the family of God. When he is falsely accused, when he suffers for crimes he did not commit, but when he is vindicated by God and exalted to glory with ultimate power and authority, he's Joseph. When in deliverance, he's the Israel's judges. In the exercise of power, he's Israel's kings. In his preaching, he is Israel's prophets. As he heals the sick, as he raises the dead, he is Elijah, he is Elisha. He is the true temple. He is the priesthood. He are Israel's uh, true sacrifices. At every turn and in every way, Jesus relives every story, every function, every part of Old Testament Israel and the whole shooting match, if I could use that term. The whole story of Israel, its history, its prophets, its judges, its kings, its temple, its history, is all relived. The whole story of Israel is downloaded into Jesus and he becomes Israel and he relives the entire history of Israel in himself. All four gospel readers take great pains to prove that point. And that's why they tell the stories that they tell and why they tell them in the way that they tell him. The whole story, the whole call, the whole purpose of Israel is downloaded. Here's a phrase that the New Testament writers wouldn't understand that one. But is downloaded into Jesus so that he, in his own person, can bring Israel to its rightful climax. So he could save it. So he could re-educate it. So he could recreate it. So he could reconstitute it according to God's original heart and purpose. Israel, who is to be the servant to the world, the servant nation to the world, has now become the servant man. Jesus will make God's true Israelites the witness that they should be to the whole world. That's why he says, when he, before his resurrection, he says, don't go to the Gentiles, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. That's the theme of how the Gospels work. But Jesus is more than all of those. He's the Christ. Jesus is Israel's Messiah for their salvation. Because if Israel is not created, recreated, 
there is no salvation for the rest of the world. That's the thing that the gospel writers are working through. So he must be David's son. He must be the Messiah. Sometimes evangelicals might ask the question, why does Jesus have to be the Messiah to be my Savior? Because without the salvation of the people of God, there is no salvation for the rest of the world. If you read the summary statements in that New Testament, you know that how many times that Paul says, my gospel is this, he's of the seed of David. What, why is that important? He's the seed of David. He's risen from the dead. Because he is fulfilling the role of Israel first before he can be the savior of the whole world. So he's got to be David's son. He's got to be Abraham's sacrifice. He's got to be the suffering servant that Isaiah preached about. All these titles tell us the identity and the mission of Jesus and gives us clues of how to read the Gospels and how he brings the past, the destiny and the call and the purpose of the nation of Israel, how he fulfills it in his own person so that the rest of the world, the nations of the world, can see and Believe The story of Israel has got to be finished before we go to the world. That's the theme of the four Gospels. So when Jesus was baptized at the Jordan River by John the Baptist, God the Father speaks from heaven those words. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Quick review, very quickly. There are three Old Testament references of Scripture that Jesus is making when he says that. He's referring to Psalm chapter 2, specifically verse number 7. This is my beloved son. This is my son. Psalm chapter 2 is the coronation of a king. I've set my king on Mount Zion, on my holy hill. Ask of me and I'll give you all the nations as your inheritance. You see, when he's crowned king, the rest of the world is going to come to him. But it says, you better kiss the son lest he be angry with you. In other words, he's going to have authority over the entire world. That's the king of the kingdom of heaven. So I can understand when God the Father says, this is my son, the king of the kingdom of heaven is manifest. But when he says, in who I am well pleased, that's Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. And that's nothing about a king there. What it is, is about a lowly servant, a slave. So who is Jesus? Is he a king or is he a slave? Which one is he? Because in the world you can't have both. But the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdoms of the world. And in the kingdom of heaven, the king is the slave and the slave is the king. And in the kingdom of heaven, you exercise the power through servanthood. And there's a powerful, powerful revelation that is brought there. And the other reference is Genesis 22, where God says to Abraham, Take your only son, as the story of him offering up Isaac as a sacrifice. And so, when Jesus hears these words, it confirms to him what he's known all along. That to be the king, you have to be the servant... And to be the servant, you have to be sacrificial to the point of death. All that is downloaded, confirmed in Jesus when the Father speaks those words from heaven. So resolving the story of Israel and bringing it to its completion is wrapped up in this theme of being a king, is wrapped up in that king being a servant, is wrapped up in that servant being sacrificial to the point of death. 
That is how the story of Israel is finally going to be brought to its completion. Even though Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven, his goals, his aims, and his purposes are not accomplished by a triumphalist domination type of spirit, but he will accomplish it through rejection, through suffering, and through death. So when God the Father says, this is my son, what does that mean? What does that mean? If we are not brought up in Old Testament Israel, we probably miss a tremendous amount of significance of what it means when God is going to call you his son. We have to understand that we're going to have to go back to the Old Testament in the time of Israel and what does it mean to be called the son of God? The father-son relationship is one of tender intimacy. The father-son relationship is one of dependence. And when Jesus starts speaking about God as the Abba, is talking about great endearment. We're going to notice several things about sonship in Israel because Jesus is going to get all this downloaded into him. And he's going to walk in that role of the Son of God, the Son of Israel. What does that mean? First of all, it means several things. But first of all, it means that God is the Father of Israel. Simple statement. But God is the Father of his people. Israel, as the whole nation, is referred to as the Son of God. Were you aware of that? Israel as a nation is referred to as God's son. When Pharaoh is listening to Moses, Moses says to Pharaoh, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go. Pharaoh, you're holding my son hostage. God refers to his people as his son. There are so many scriptures. How do I pick and choose which ones to share with you? Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. Out of Egypt I have called my son. How many times do we read in the Old Testament where Israel says to God, But you are our father. Isaiah 64, 8 as one of many examples. When Moses at the end of his life gave his final exhortation to the people of Israel in what is known as the Song of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 32, read it and see how many times God is referred to as the father, even the mother, the parent of that nation. So just think of that. Read through Deuteronomy 32. How many times is God referred to as the father of that nation? And for God to be your father implies in the Old Testament a couple of things. The first thing that it implies, and listen carefully to this, to call God your father, for God to call you his son, this father relationship in dear, intimate association, means this. The attitude of God towards his people. This is good news, folks. Make a shout. The attitude of God towards his people 
Because He's Father. This is not a New Testament revelation. This is Old Testament law talking here. Is one of concern. It's one of love. Pity. Patience. And if necessary, discipline. Well, you're all excited about that one, aren't you? Care, concern, patience, pity, and if necessary, discipline. But even all those passages in the law that speak about discipline, it's always for the sake of your best interests. Not hallelujah or oh me or oh my, none of that. <laughs> Always for the sake of your best interests. Alright? Listen to a couple of scriptures found in the law. You don't get this out of the New Testament. This is Old Testament law t- talking here. Deuteronomy one thirty one: The Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. That's Old Testament law talking. Listen to uh, Deuteronomy 8, verse 5. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Listen to 2 Samuel seven fourteen. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. For God to call himself the father of Israel means his whole passion and his concern is a father's heart to his people. Love, compassion, pity, concern, and if necessary, discipline for your best interests. That's what it means that God calls himself your father. What does it mean for the son? On the other side of this relationship, what is expected from the son is respect and Obedience. Without a shadow of a doubt, the way you show love is obedience. Love is not an emotion. Love is obedience. Without a shadow of a doubt. That's how love is expressed. In obedience. The Old Testament is full of passages. How do I pick and choose which ones to share with you? But the Old Testament is full of passages where it says the passionate, deep, Passionate, loving Father is deeply grieved when there is not respectful obedience from His children. And the point I want to make is God is not some hard rock. God has a heart, is emotional, and feels very, very, very deeply. He takes great joy when his sons and daughters love him in obedience. And he is hurt to the quick when it doesn't happen. The Old Testament God has deep emotion. That's the revelation we have in Scripture. He has deep, deep emotion. Listen to some of his heart. Some, some of the scriptures where he feels pain, as in Malachi 1.6, this is God being full of pain. He says, The son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am your father, where is my honor? If I am master, where is my reverence? 
That's painful for God to say that kind of thing. It hurts him. It hurts him deeply. Fatherhood in Old Testament Israel implies domestic, judicial, educational, and spiritual authority. The relationship is not necessarily or essentially emotional, but it's authority that expects obedience in the context of a trusting, providing, and a protective relationship. And so when God affirms to Jesus, you are my son, Jesus understands all of that. It's just not a recognition, well, that's my boy. The whole father-son covenant relationship of the Old Testament is implied. Remember, he is Israel. He is Israel. And so when Jesus begins calling God Abba, Abba Father, everything that I just said is implied to call God Abba Father. He's going to demonstrate his love to his Father through full and complete obedience no matter where that obedience is going to take them. Full and complete obedience. Another theme from the Old Testament law about what it means to be called a son of God, it means God has entered into covenant with you. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 8. And I think this is part of one of the most beautiful scriptures of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people to himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you. Oh, I like that. Nothing in us that God should choose us. But because the Lord loves you. Come on, say amen at that. Because the Lord loves you. And because He would keep the oath, He swore to our fathers, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all because He's faithful and He is love. Folks, that's not New Testament. That's Old Testament. This is the Old Testament God. Don't think the Old Testament God is some brute monster. He is a loving Father. A loving Father. Many times, every individual would be called the Son. The whole nation is called the Son, but every individual would be called the Son. And if you were to read all the passages in the Old Testament where an individual person is called the Son, it is always 100% in this context that the emphasis is this. Like Father, like Son. If you're going to be my Son, have my character. 100% of the time. To be the Son of God is to have His character. So when God calls Son, what it means is that we need to obey in an ethical manner that's in line with our Father's character. We are to take up our Father's character. That's what it means to be called His Son. So all the way through the Gospels, you're going to see Jesus taking on and exhibiting 
the nature of his Father. That's what's going to be happening in the Gospels. And to understand that is to open so much of our understanding. Because we know that the firstborn always receives an inheritance, and he is the heir of God. But it also means, and here it is a repetition a little bit, that love is synonymous with obedience. To love the Father of Israel is to obey God and keep covenant. To love God means you meditate on His words. To love God that means you sit with your Bible in front of you and you dwell on it and you let those words somehow get off that page and deep inside your heart so that those words become the way in which you think, you live, you breathe, you feel that the covenant of God, the word of God, totally transforms you so that you take on the nature of the one who spoke those words. That's what it means to love God. Jesus said the same, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's how we express love to God. It's not so much as an emotion, but it can be emotional. But it is the Word of God getting in you to transform your nature so you take on God's character and God's nature. Again, listen, Deuteronomy uh, 6, verses 5 and 6. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13. And now Israel... What does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God, listen to this, with all your heart, with all your soul, and keep the commandments of the the Lord and His statutes, which I command you today for your good. Cares for us, provides for us, protects us, and our response is conforming to His truths, conforming to His Word. To love Him is to soak in the Scriptures until it becomes the way you think, the way you feel, the way you act, the way you respond. To love is to obey. That's the way it works. To know that God has called you his, your Father gives you a foundation for your future. Listen to very carefully. Because there's inheritance involved here and He's going to give inheritance. It gives you hope and a covenant and a foundation for your future. Folks, my future is not dependent upon what's going on in the world. My future is rooted in the fact that God is my Father. And He happens to rule over everything. And He always plays the trump card in everything the world does anyway. I'm going to say it again. My future is not bound up by what's going on in this world. My future is rooted in the fact that God has called him, called himself my Father. That gives me hope for the future. Jesus knew when he heard those words, in whom I am well pleased, that that was not a reference to a king, but that was a reference to what Isaiah refers to as a suffering servant. And Jesus knew his Bible well enough, by the time we get to Isaiah 53, rejection and cruel death happens to that suffering servant. And he knew that the purpose of God will be accomplished by sacrificial death rather than by triumphant domination. You don't win the world by dominating, you win the world by dying for them. He understood that. 
But death is not a nice thing, is it? Nobody, you know, Jesus, when he gets that hour, should I say, Father, take me from this hour, but for this hour I came into the world. Praying in the Garden of Gethsemane was no easy task. He knows what's ahead of him. But listen to this. He has some greater confidence. And that great confidence is that if obedience takes him to death, it makes no difference in the long run because God is his Father. And God, even in the Old Testament, cannot, will not, could not ever abandon his people. I'm going to say that again. God cannot, will not, could not ever abandon His people. Ever, ever, never. He cannot abandon us. No matter what we're going through, if our obedience takes us to death, He doesn't abandon us even in death. He may discipline. (laughs) Read the Scriptures. And it hurts and it pains the heart of God and He weeps when he has to discipline his people. He may discipline, but he will always, after discipline, move you and I, his people, his children, his sons and his daughters, will always move us towards restoration and redemption. He is a father and he could do no other. He can do no other. That's what it means to be called a son of God. So Jesus knew the story of Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22, and he knew that Isaac walked down the mountain, and he knew that his father would not abandon him, even in death, and if he has to die, his father would not abandon him, and he'll come out of it alive. Folks, that's what it means to know God as your Father. That's what it means to know God as your Father. You come out alive no matter what you go through. Even through the valley of the shadow of death, you come out alive. Folks, the end of the story is not yet told. Ever told you what the end of the story is? It's glory, folks. God cannot abandon you. Therefore, Jesus could say, On the third day, I will arise because I know my Father. To be called the Son of God, listen to this very carefully, to be called the Son of God means that God wants to use you for the salvation of the nations of the world. It is not just God is my Father, there is a purpose in being the Son of God. And that purpose is witness and testimony to the nations of the world. It's not so we can have, well, God is my Father, and I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Well, thank God you'll go to heaven. But there's a call and there's a purpose behind it. And that is the witness to the nations of the world. By election, Israel was chosen to be the servant to the nations. By entering into covenant with God, it learned to be a witness for God. By kingship, power to care and power to serve, not dominate, the nations will come into the people of God. 
when God calls Israel his firstborn, you can't have a first unless you're expecting more to come. And if Israel nation is the firstborn, then God anticipates through Israel's obedience, many nations will be born as well. But here's the important part. The others to come in, come in because of the witness of the children of God. In practical terms, what does that mean? To put it very simply, if an unbeliever asks the question, what is God like? The answer we should be able to give is this. Look at the church. You see the church, you see what God is like. That agenda has never changed. That agenda has never changed. Because the purpose of covenant, the purpose of entering into relationship and having a covenant with God the Father and being His sons, the purpose of sitting with that Word and absorbing it and learning it and meditating on it and letting it work inside your heart and your mind until it changes your nature and your character is for one reason. Well, many reasons, but the one reason I'm thinking of right now is that God's nature is reproduced in you and you become a witness without having to open your mouth. I'm not saying you shouldn't open your mouth. Of course, I'm not saying that. But I am saying your life is the only book that some people are going to read. You follow what I'm saying here? This is how we are to be the witness to the world. God made that known right with Abraham because early in the life of Abraham, when we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord says, should I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? Because Abraham, from him is going to come a great nations, and from Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed by his descendants. So I'm not going to hide from Abraham what I'm about to do. And he tells them, but listen to this, the reason I can trust Abraham is this, and it specifically says in Genesis 18, because I know him, he is going to command his children. He is going to command his household after him that they will keep the way of the Lord, that his descendants will do righteousness and justice, just that the Lord may bring to Abraham what was promised to him. And the idea is being this, when we embrace the covenant, when we embrace the word of God, when we absorb it, when we train our children in this thing, the world will know what God is like because they see his people. Because they see his sons that have the same character as their father. The world will see. We enter into covenant with God out of gratitude. God's been merciful to us. And just like on your wedding day you make your vows, you didn't put yourself under legalism when you made your vows, did you? That was a free will obligation because I love you. This is how I behave. It's birthed by love for God. This is how we behave. And notice what Jeremiah would say. He would say, when Israel was backslidden, he says, My people, Jeremiah 4, 1-2, If you return to me, O Israel, if you return to me, says the Lord, if you put away your wrongdoings out of my sight, 
you won't be moved. If you return to me, if you would take on judgment, justice, truth, and righteousness, then you will be able to say this to the world. This is Jeremiah 4, 1 to 2. I'm not, invite, I'm not inventing this. Then if you take on truth, righteousness, and justice, then you could say to the world, the Lord lives, and then the nations will bless themselves in Him, and in Him shall they glory. In other words, the preaching of the church has got to be backed up with the character of God evident in the church. Then we could say to the world, the Lord lives, and they've got a reason to believe us. Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So all of these thoughts that I've just shared here, when God says, this is my son, all of that is downloaded on the shoulders of Jesus, everything we just shared. Because every Jew would understand everything we have just shared with you. Now the question is this, will Jesus stay on the path of obedience even if that obedience leads to suffering. When you get into the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 10 to 18, and other passages of Hebrews, where it talks about the obedience of the Son, His sonship, His obedience, His humanity, His temptation, His victory, all this is impressed upon Jesus when the Father speaks that at His baptism. So let's recapitulate quickly. Being called the Son of God, Jesus must relive in his own person the entire story of Israel. Every story, every person, every law is downloaded into him, and he's got to live it all out. He is God's Son, and he has to succeed where Old Testament Israel failed. When he calls himself the true vine in John 15, where do you think he got that picture from? That's Isaiah's picture for Israel. In Mark 12, when he calls himself the heir of the vineyard, where do you think he gets that from? That's Old Testament Isaiah again. And Jesus is the heir of God. He knows who he is. He knows who he is. But to fulfill the call of God on his life, absolute and complete obedience is required. That's why the writer of Hebrews makes this comment. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That means he had to live out, fully submit to, and never break the ways of the covenant and fulfill the law in his own person in every sense of the word. Now you can understand far better the 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness. Because there in the wilderness, what was happening is Jesus was going through the same story as Old Testament Israel in their 40 years. And every time they were put to the test, they broke covenant with God. When there was a temptation to pride or temptation to ambition or temptation to ego, they would break covenant and submit to those desires. But Jesus never submitted to any of those desires. But every time he quotes the scriptures so that he might embrace the covenant, and he lived out the covenant. When you start reading the 40 days in the wilderness through that eyes, does it ever open up the meaning of the story to you? He passed the test powerfully. Thank God for that. He came out the obedient son, and he went through those kinds of tests in subtle forms for the next three years of his life, constantly choosing obedience. The son 
to the Father. When he's called the true Son, he knows this, that the fate of the nations lies in his obedience to the Father. And even when that obedience would lead to death, he knows because God is his Father, that even when he's on the cross, he could say these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, even through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me and you don't forsake me. It is impossible for the father to abandon his children. It is impossible for the father to abandon his children. It doesn't mean we don't feel like we're abandoned sometimes. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Folks, he wasn't forsaken. God was in Christ, not forsaken him. He was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Just because you feel like it doesn't mean it's true. God cannot abandon his children. He's in covenant. He is the Father. So he could just commit his spirit to the Lord. Knowing his Father was in covenant to him. Folks, you and I, no matter how desperate things be, God will vindicate His people. God will vindicate His people, no matter how desperate things may look. Because He's the Son of God, He knows He has an inheritance. I like that. Because He's going to share that glory with every other son He brings in. Brings many sons unto glory, we're told in Hebrews chapter 2. All of that is downloaded. Did you know so much was downloaded in that one statement? All of that is downloaded into Jesus and confirmed when God says, This is my son. He's going to finish the story of Israel and all what it means to know God as his father. So, that's the foundation of the gospel. Without understanding that, we have very little foundation upon which to build our understanding of what the gospel is. That's the foundation of the gospel, that Jesus has come to redo the whole story of Israel, to bring it to its conclusion. <coughs> Now, here is the next question, which I'll just ask and leave it unanswered. How shall this son, this king, this Messiah, this Christ, how does he fulfill his mission? If he's the king, how is his authority demonstrated and how is it manifest? How do you conquer the nations? What is the kingdom of heaven like? The Gospels are going to paint pictures for us, all four of them are going to paint pictures for us, that the kingdom of heaven is nothing like the kingdoms of this world, not a scrap like it, not an iota like it whatsoever. The kingdom of heaven is completely opposite to the kingdoms of the world, therefore puts the church in constant conflict with the world 
because of two ways of doing things. Constant conflict with the world. The kingdom of heaven is completely opposite to the kingdoms of this world, and it is wrong to take the world's concepts of greatness and impose them into the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, the king is the one and the same person as the servant. Not just the servant, but a suffering servant. We have to turn to that fact next because that is going to become the paradigm. It's going to become the example, the picture by which you and I must live and must minister. And it's through that, adopting that heart, that the kingdom of heaven will be revealed to the world. That's how the witness to the world takes place. Through the hearts of servants. But that's to come. It's not for today. But I think, as I work through these thoughts, I don't know about you, but knowing what Jesus took on his shoulders, the responsibility he's had, and his determination to be obedient in all things, to keep covenant with his Father, I'll tell you what it's done for me. It has caused me to appreciate him a whole lot more. Amen? It caused me to appreciate Him a whole lot more. It's caused me to love Him more that He would do this. And uh, it makes me want to show my gratitude who so lived this life to bring the purpose and the grace of God to you and me. He's a mighty God. He's a loving Heavenly Father. He's a good God. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased.